podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Well, welcome to the show about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. My name is Carl Valeri, and I am really excited today. Uh, We have Brian Scholl, who's a SR-71 pilot, also a keynote speaker and author of The Sled Driver, Flying the World's Fastest Jet. You know, in a time where many have given up their dreams of flight, Brian's story, I think, will truly inspire those future aviators or those aviators that have been doing it for a while and have decided to give up. But we're going to try to inspire you to not to give up. But a quick uh, word from our sponsor before we get started. This uh, podcast is sponsored by AviationCareersPodcast.com. Uh, they have the scholarships guide. Uh, also, we have career coaching. And uh, a lot of courses online to help you move forward in your career. And if you want to maybe learn to fly for free, that scholarships guide now has over $90 million in scholarships. And you can get a free one if you use that coupon code PAYITFORWARD, all one word. You can check that out on the website, Aviation Careers Podcast, our sister podcast here. Now entering cruise flight. Somebody that's joining us today has also been at Sun and Fun. You know that we have a link to Sun and Fun Radio. You, you can listen to interviews from years past uh, that stream all year long. And I really highly recommend you going out there, especially since we've had to cancel Sun and Fun this year and most air shows. Uh, but uh, I am really you know, honored to have with us, though, Brian Scholl, SR-71 pilot and truly uh, an outstanding uh, individual, outstanding American. Welcome to the show, uh, Brian. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad glad to be here. Brian, you know, all of us, when we're in aviation, we start somewhere, and we start with this passion that has actually grown uh, through our lives, and it's actually, you know, it sparked somehow. You have had an incredible flying career, but there must have been something that started you off towards that journey in aviation. Well, for me, it was around age nine or uh, going to a big air show at Andrews Air Force Base um, Memorial Day weekend. I do a really big show there every year, and I was just a kid and living in Virginia. And my dad was in the Marine Corps that we were stationed there at Quantico, and uh, we went up there, and uh, I'll tell you, it, uh, I guess it's kind of changed my life seeing the Thunderbirds, the Blue Angels, B-58 Hustlers, the, you name it, everything in the inventory flew by that day, and it made a Fearing uh, impression on a uh, on a young uh, young boy, and uh, I thought, boy, I just need to try that. And not long after that, my big epiphany was that I uh, didn't realize that was a real job you could have uh, full time. I thought it was just a weekend air show thing that uh, they did. And uh, my dad said, no, you you could join the Air Force and be a real pilot and then do that every day. <laughs> I thought. Wow, and they would pay you to to do that. I, as a, I thought, well, the the Yankees weren't calling me up yet. I I wasn't going to play third base for them, so I I just thought I'd try that, and uh, it was just a, ended up being a twenty year journey in the Air Force of uh, flying. Got to fly ten or fifteen different kinds of airplanes, and uh, 
this really lucky and fortunate I got to live my dream. And I, I do feel very lucky about that because I know a lot of people have a dream about flying and they have plans and uh, an idea and uh, things never work out exactly the way you <clears throat> think they will in life. But uh, I was lucky enough to actually get to live that dream and do it. Well, you may not have played for the Yankees, but you sure hit a home run with your career. That, that's for sure. Uh, and you know, but, and just in doing that, you've experienced so much. And it's interesting you said that we, you know, we don't we plan things, but it usually doesn't go exactly as planned, does it? And especially in your career. Uh, so you went and you learned how to fly. What? Uh, and I think a lot of folks may not realize this, but I mean, I think I was you were in the uh, in the Air Force. I guess about the same time I was born uh, in during Vietnam. Uh, so now a very, very long and interesting career. Uh, so one of the things that has happened is you, you went down a path of being able to get out there to, to fly these fighters. And we're not going to go through the whole process, but I'm sure there, there must have been some challenges along the way. And then there was an ultimate challenge, I think, that happened in Vietnam. So tell us a little bit about some of those challenges in getting your license, just, just like some of these people now that are trying to get their certificates. Well, you know, one of the favorite stories I always love to tell people is, is, of course, not one that makes me look very good, but it's very real, and I, I enjoy sharing it with people because they tend to look at uh, my career in a way that, well, he flew the SR-71, and he must have been a great pilot. He must have just been, uh, you know, tremendous, gifted, and, and everything. And the reality is, when I first got in the Air Force, I had no ROTC. I had no flying experience. I had no nothing and just a great desire to want to do it and learn. And I almost washed out of pilot training in the first few weeks. And in those days, they put you through a Cessna 172 for six weeks to kind of wash out the guys they didn't want to waste jet fuel on. And I was one of those guys that was on the list of, uh, yeah, there's no, no natural flying skills here. And it wasn't so much I couldn't do it. I just, I just wasn't understanding. And uh, it was all new to me. And the guy was yelling at me. And it was just a... Uh, it was just so coming real fast and furious, and I just didn't have time to digest it all. And, and I was just had a really good attitude and a, and a great desire, but I was not uh, performing well. And I tell people I, I could have easily washed out in the, in, in the first couple of months of pilot training just because I didn't. it wasn't a, a comfortable environment that I knew a lot about, and I had zero experience. So I, I tell that story to people because it's, it's real, and because I don't want people to get discouraged when they, if they start flying and, and they find it not to be exactly how they imagined it to be, which I can guarantee you, <laughs> Cessna 172 was not what I uh, had in mind or uh, had any, any uh, knowledge of how to operate. Uh, so it, it's something that I don't want people to be discouraged when things don't go exactly as, as planned, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a long journey, a long road, not for everybody. And life takes many turns and twists that uh, just either make you better at the end, give you that experience, and really hone you to a fine edge or or set you on a different course. Uh, so that's the real mystery, joy, and, and uh, revelation of life is that it's it's an adventure and a, and a, and a part of a path each day you can't predict or know. Uh, so I, I tell all the people that, that want to fly or start flying, hey, you know, uh, give it a try, and if you if your heart's in it and you have the right attitude and desire, uh, you'll you'll learn to do it. I'm I'm living proof that uh, that theory. <laughs> 
Yeah, a Cessna 172 and then flying an SR-71, and, and your challenges started off there. So for those that are listening, gosh, if you're having challenges now, you never know what you can do and where, where you can go with your flying career and your flying life, even if it's as a hobby, which most of our listeners are doing this as you know recreation. It's, it's a wonderful thing, I think, and it teaches so much about life. But speaking of that, in your flying career, uh, and again, we're just so honored to have someone with, with your service and your background, and we really, really appreciate all, all those that are listening that, that have served. You went over to Vietnam, and you were flying a, uh, an aircraft that I think a lot of people don't may not know a lot about, uh, but eventually had a very challenging experience and overcame that also. So tell us a little bit about what you were flying and then what that experience was. Well, the <clears throat> Air Force and Navy had a bunch of uh, T-28s that they sold to the uh, to the uh, foreign air forces over in Southeast Asia. And there was only one squadron in America down at Keithler that uh, I was a part of that was flying T-28s. And uh, we were flying the, the uh, A, B, and uh, C model. And they made a D model, which was kind of a combat version of the airplane with three pylons on each wing and carried guns, bombs, rockets. And basically, we were foreign air advisors uh, helping the uh, Cambodians, the Laotians, and Thais uh, learn how to fly and, and be able to uh, uh, support their own countries. Uh, but it turned out to be a special operations uh, wing there, and uh, we had some unique uh, skills in that way because no one else was qualified in P-28s. Uh, we were part of the um, foreign training program there for many years. So when I went over there, uh, we were doing some very interesting stuff, no name, no rank uh, thing, uh, you know, flying near Cambodia and into Laos and, and all around Thailand. And it was doing some very interesting things for a very young lieutenant, getting a lot of a good experience. And um, sadly, had to uh, park an airplane into the jungle one day when uh, I thought I had just simple engine failure. It turned out later they said I probably had taken a couple of rounds into the, the cowling and was shot down. But either way, it didn't matter to me. The result was the same. Um, rode an airplane into jungles too low to bail out and uh, blew up and uh, pretty much thought my life was over and uh, medevac to Okinawa where I spent uh, two months intensive care. I didn't die. And they said, well, we'll ship them back home to Fort Sam Houston, Texas at the burn center there. And I spent a year uh, recovering there. And the interesting learning process of all that was the Air Force just assumed I would be getting out and have a medical discharge. There was no way I was ever going to come back and fly with that extent of injury to my hands, especially. And uh, I just thought they didn't get the the big picture was that uh, I needed that motivation to get through all the therapy and all the surgery. I had to believe I would I would get back to having a life and flying. Now, deep down, I knew I probably wouldn't. And I understood why I wouldn't, but I was not going to um, take on that attitude of uh, giving up or, or just quitting on the dream. I thought, well, what do you have to lose if I don't ever fly again? Okay, that's, so be it. But if I have that chance, I, I just couldn't. There was nothing motivating me to get through all the uh, horrible, painful treatments and uh, long hours of therapy and stuff that just hurts your body every day. So. It was, um, and I preach this in my talks, it's all about attitude. It it isn't about heroics, bravery, or strength, or gifted um, talents. It's really about the attitude you take and the approach you 
you take into whatever it is you're doing, whether it's flying, music, art, whatever. And with a good attitude and a positive attitude, it doesn't mean everything's going to work out right all the time, but you'd be amazed how far you can go and what you, what you can do. And attitude's everything. And uh, I, we always used to say that in the squadron, and it, it's true in life. Uh, so I, I had a bad attitude some days in the hospital, I'll guarantee you. Uh, but I generally, deep down, the basic bottom line was uh, I wasn't going to give up on whatever slight thread of chance there could be. So uh, it really was about making choices and keeping the attitude. It wasn't about the and being very lucky and having some really good people around you. And this is a part of the story a lot of people forget. They they try to promote me as a, as a great example of ABC, whatever, but... I didn't do all this alone. I had a lot of therapists, doctors, surgeons, administrative people, assignment people, Air Force people go to bat for me uh, to make it all happen. So, you know, we're all part of a big team in life. We all live on this planet together. <laughs> uh, I just learned in my adventure, I'll call it, uh, attitude uh, is, is where you start. Uh, and then you can't predict, and you're not in control of a whole lot of things that are going to happen uh, from that point on. We think we're in control. We think we're, we are, and, uh, you, you know, you make plans, it makes God laugh, uh, they say, and that's very true. Um, so you do the best you can uh, with the best attitude that you can have in, in any situation. So I was very lucky. I feel very blessed. I don't take all the credit people want to give me for my my ability to return to flying, I know I did a lot of therapy, and I'll say, yes, sir, Bob, I, I did do that because I've had nothing else to do. What was the alternative? The alternative was just to sit there and watch the uh, use of your fingers become completely unusable and just go get out of the Air Force and the rest of your life never do anything. So it was a very simple A or B choice. It wasn't real compl complicated. You either pry or you don't. And it was that simple for me. And uh, little did I know I would ever get back to flying, much less, you know, go on to fly the world's fastest jet. I, from laying near dead in the jungle to flying the world's fastest jet. I, that story amazes me as much as it does my audiences sometimes. So uh, <laughs> you just never know uh, where the path is going to take you. You talk a lot about attitude. And, I, you know, to many of us, you're a hero for, for what you've done. And all those people have helped you, but many times we feel we should, we're going to just give up. Was there a time that you felt that way? Absolutely. Um, especially those first two months in Okinawa when <laughs> they'd, they'd come in with such great revelations and say, like, well, the doc has decided he's going to cut off those two fingers, so don't worry about the therapy on that <laughs> anymore. <laughs> um yeah, I kind of gave up and reached rock bottom. And I think sometimes you have to reach rock bottom before you can appreciate the full journey ahead. And I, I reached that point in, at, uh, in Okinawa there when I was in intensive care. I just didn't want to go on. I didn't want to have another day because it meant just another day of pain and discomfort and no future. And just uh, it just didn't seem like there was any end in sight. So, it, yeah, it wasn't like, oh, man, I had a great attitude from day one, and I was uh, just, uh, okay, let's do this. No, it was like, I don't even understand what this is. I'm not prepared for this. I don't want to do this. And what's the what's the end result? It's not even worth doing this. 
So, yes, uh, very deep depression. And uh, luckily for me, I didn't stay in that state very long. And this is what really kills people in the hospital. And what, what impedes their progress is that, that thinking into that depressed attitude that may never come out of. <clears throat> and, and 90% of your recovery and healing is mental. It, it, it really is. And it goes back to the attitude thing. So, yeah, I'm not going to say I, I was uh, positive about it. I used to pray every night, please, God, just don't let that sun come up again tomorrow because that's another day of torture here. And just let me die. Just I didn't sign up for this. I, didn't, I can't do it. And you just don't think you can do it. And uh, you find out you can do more than, than you think. And uh, uh, you don't feel like you can take credit for it. But you're amazed at, at, at how it happens. For those that are, you know, right now struggling with things in their lives, there's so much struggle going on right now because of COVID, obviously. Um, you know, a lot of folks are thinking of giving up on certain things in their life, especially flying. And is there something that you reached out to that defined that change that got you over that hump of not giving up? Or or was it something that just came about, you know, uh, it was, you know, serendipitous. Did it just come about as far as, or was it a person? Was it just one day saying, that's it, I'm going to, I'm going to make it. Well, I think it, you know, it's not, I don't think it was like some serendipitous thing, but I mean, I, in today's world, we have a lot of challenges with the COVID thing going on. And I tell people don't lose hope. We can't. And, you know, having real hope and faith is, is when you can't see the, the end result. That's, that's when you need it most. Not when you can, oh, you can see it's all going to get better and it's all going to be good. And a lot of people have a lot of hope and faith when, when uh, you know, they see all the cards. No, it's not knowing. That's when you need that hope and faith the most. And, again, it came down to basically only two choices. You quit and give up or you go on. It's a, it's a dead end and you go left or right. It isn't a complicated thing. And in most cases in life, when, when every decision we've made, whether it's to, to get married, to have kids, to go take a job to go fly to whatever it is we're going to do it comes down to you know a or b yes or no um am i going to do it or try to do it with no guarantee or you know the only real guarantee in life is when you quit and give up and yet then you know you're not going to that and those that guarantee i i just just doesn't make me feel as good so maybe it was just an attitude i had of well you're never going to do anything in life anymore so you might as well just have a good attitude about it and uh and just uh make the most of it the best you can do i always uh, one of my favorite quotes in life is uh uh life is either a daring adventure or it's nothing at all and who who said that well helen keller said that now and i always tell people if a if a person who couldn't see or hear or speak and all of the wonderful things that our senses give us every day, if they had figured this out and they know that, what are we missing that we're, we let every little thing, you know, uh, knock us down and, and crumble? I, I just think people uh, lose perspective, which is my second point I always <laughs> talk about is attitude it goes right into perspective. Don't ever lose that perspective uh, it, if you want to know the fact, there were people way more injured than I in the hospital that I saw. There are people who lost arms and legs and people who lost their eye and lost their vision. Uh, so I always felt lucky in some way that they didn't cut those fingers off and that I could 
do things and go back and have a life. So I feel very gifted. I don't. It was blessed, not uh, not that I made all these right decisions or was extra uh, strong or anything like that. But it it it's a personal choice you make in life, and uh, with the right attitude and keeping perspective, you end up making choices. Do I want to go back in the Air Force and fly? Go through the therapy? Or does, does it mean that much to me? Or do I want to go take another path? And only individuals can answer that. You know, you can't tell people. You cannot give people motivation. I never call myself a motivational speaker. I don't think you can make them. You have to motivate yourself. I can inspire you. And I like that you use the word inspiration in your show. Because you can inspire people. A picture, a, a movie, a thought, a speech can inspire. But the motivation, that comes from deep within inside each individual. And everybody's wired a little differently. Everyone has different, makes different choices, has a different perspective and a different attitude. So I can only speak to what I, uh, what I experienced. And you truly persevered, you know, through hope and also through, uh, you know, having that perspective. And, you know, one of the things I feel is great for giving that perspective, especially now, is to volunteer, help somebody else. Uh, there's always, I love that you, you use that example, there's always someone else that's worse off. And, and you can reach out and then just realize how blessed you are just by doing that. I think it's a wonderful thing, wonderful example, that's for sure. But in doing this, you, you were able not just to get back to flying, but you wound up flying the fastest jet out there, the SR-71. So it took some time, I'm sure, and some challenges. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll talk. I definitely have to talk about the SR-71. Well, yeah, I always tell people I went from uh, 200 knots in that Cessna to 2,000 knots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I and I start on my talks off with this statement. I'll tell you, I'm the luckiest guy in the world uh, to get to have done all those things. Um, it was just a, again, uh, I'd pretty much done all the things I wanted to do in flying, and was getting ready to go to a staff job and you sit behind a desk and everything. I thought, well, where where can you fly as a senior officer besides being the leader of the Thunderbirds? Which I wasn't going to do that. Uh, where can you go and still, and, and that, that offered me an opportunity that uh, I didn't really think I, I could do, but I did some research and was always fascinated with that airplane. I loved the mission, the, doing something real, and uh, it takes a, a week-long interview process. you got to get all these letters done, a two-day astronaut physical, lots of interviews, fly the T-38 a couple times with the squadron members, and just a, a very deep process of... Um, looking at you as someone that could do do top secret missions and want to fly in a space suit and be up there with no weapons on your plane now, which I'd always been used to having. So, um, it again, not the kind of flying for everybody that would be comfortable or want, they'd even want to do it. You're out of the country six months out of the year. And so it was just um, something I, I felt would be a, a really good uh, career move at that time to stay in the cockpit and uh, have a real mission and really uh, do something uniquely different. Only 89 guys in history got to fly the plane. So I feel, again, very lucky to have gotten to do it. It was a meaningful mission. It was the most amazing airplane of the 20th century. I, I was told the most remarkable jet of the 20th century, without a doubt, and how it was built, what it did, and for how well it did it. And the fact that it, it still holds all those speed records and altitude records to this day for air breathing jets. Um, real privilege to fly it. We feel good about the mission, what we were able to accomplish with it. 
and uh, what it did, that airplane stands alone as a testament to attitude and perseverance by Lockheed and Kelly Johnson that they could even build an airplane like that that at a titanium that everybody said could not be done. And then sustain Mach 3 speeds at those altitudes. They said that couldn't be done. And to do it in those years of ancient technology, in 62 and 61, it's like, wow, that, that was an, an amazing process in itself. And I always, I always felt a close kinship with that airplane because I think we were both uh, resurrected out of, out of the ashes of uh, doubt that everybody said, oh, there's no way Jules can ever get back and fly. They all said, there's no way you're going to build an airplane like that. It, it's going to be cost prohibitive and it's just not going to work. And it did. And uh, I was really proud to be able to fly it. And I'm uh, very happy. I, I took the time to, to write some books about it because people should should keep the memory of that airplane alive uh, for many years to come. It was very, very unique. You know, that you truly are blessed. And, and yes, it is a testament to to the folks that have designed it and also to you to, that were able to get back into it. One thing about the airplane, I think some people don't realize, they talk about how fast it is, but what was its mission? Why was it so important, this aircraft? Well, you know, a lot of people have forgotten all about the Cold War now and all the geopolitical events that took place between the Vietnam War and the Gulf War. There was a lot of things going on around the world, and uh, the fact that we could take uh, reconnaissance photos and uh, real-time stuff and, and do things satellites couldn't do uh, really made the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, at the Pentagon very happy to have that kind of intel and uh, use that airplane in a way uh, that was meaningful. And I'll and I tell you, I think Ronald Reagan really got a kick out of the fact that that airplane did lay down a double sonic boom. And, and he kind of enjoyed the fact that they knew that when we're flying over them and they, and he liked that. Yeah. Yeah. We're there. You can't do a thing about it. Uh, so it was kind of a, a waving of the flag and uh, a little bit of the American Eagle flying over you <laughs> and you knew it. Uh, so it was um, a very key element in the uh, intelligence gathering of the cold war that was uh, important and ongoing all the time uh, and could do things. Like I said, that uh, the satellites couldn't do very unique capabilities uh, that were highly uh, utilized. And, uh, you know, we could look through weather, we could look underwater, we could track submarines, we could, we did things, that, you, keep in mind, it was a 57 Chevy as far as the, the body of that airplane, but the sensors that they were able to advance and put on that airplane over the 25 years it flew became very highly sophisticated. And uh, it was the same, the same body, but boy, they could, put some new stuff on that airplane years near the end there in the late 80s that was pretty cosmic and uh, that airplane could have flown another another 10 years uh very well and a lot of people wished it had yeah. <laughs> but uh it's just the, the way we do things and i think it's pretty to look at and and that's my perspective oh yeah <laughs> the how could it not be <laughs> the, you know it's not fair that the same company made the two prettiest airplane the f-104 and the SR-71, both came out of the same stable. I've always found that uh, a real testament to Kelly Johnson and his crew there. So the, this plane, you said that nobody could touch you. Why is that? Is it, what's the speed and how, how high can you go? Well, it's not that you, know, you outrun missiles or anything. You don't. But uh, when, you're at it, when you're at, say, 86, 88,000 feet, and you're doing 32 miles a minute, 
you're going to have to lead me by 30 miles with your, your missile if you think you're going to hit me. And uh, that's a tough shot. And if I detect that missile's launch, which my man in the back seat had a lot of equipment to do that, um, I make a turn. Now that missile runs out of fuel and is not able to, uh, to accomplish the uh, intercept. So it's a very difficult shot, and they got tired of embarrassing themselves and uh, missing, so they just didn't even, even try after a while. But uh, it's not a matter of outrunning missiles or anything. You just uh, basically out, outmaneuver them with, with your speed. Your speed and altitude become your real, your real weapons. You talk about sensors and the fact that it could reach out to just about see anything almost. Uh, is that what made you transition into the, it seems, a, a life of, of photography and this fascination with the world? Did that spur it, or was that something you were interested beforehand? Well, I think it was something I was kind of interested in uh, beforehand a little bit, and, yeah, it all kind of went together. It was a, p- a part of uh, photography uh, in that sense uh, to me. Mostly it was the sights that I got to see from sitting in that seat at those altitudes that really dazzled me and impressed me in a photographic way. And one of the reasons why I ever even wanted to take any pictures uh, around the airplane at all. It was just so magnificent of an airplane, but then the sights that you got to see uh, were emblazoned in your mind for the rest of your life. You'll never, you'll never fly like that again, and you'll just never see those things. Uh, seeing seeing the stars at night, uh, seeing the Milky Way from uh, you know eighty eight thousand feet, and, and having that that vision, uh, it's just a picture that you'll never forget. Uh, just seeing the Earth uh, at those altitudes, it was a it was a beautiful thing. So I guess as 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 a photographer minded person, um, I I didn't miss those moments, and I'm glad I didn't. Now I'm glad that. Uh, to be able to share them with so many people who really appreciate uh, seeing that now, who would never, never get to see that. Uh, I, I wish I'd taken more pictures. <laughs> I really do. Uh, but I've always had a fascination and love for photography well before I got to the SR. It was just a kind of a match made in heaven to be around that airplane and want to, want to capture what few pictures you could take uh, on film and just, just, preserve that because it's all gone now it's just nothing lasts forever it's just quickly all gone yeah, and it's sad but that's just part of history and that's how life is nothing stays the same <laughs> that's for sure yeah, so don't miss don't miss what you're doing and and i tell people you know go in the military or just flying civilian i said don't miss a day of it don't ever miss it because it'll be over before you, before you know it, really. Yeah, that's for sure, especially as we're seeing now with people getting laid off, furloughed, et cetera, and uh, it really it gets here one minute, gone the next. Um, you know, talk, yeah. talking about those, those sites you saw, it would be wonderful if, if people could see those pictures. Uh, is there any, anything out there where they can reach out and maybe somehow, is there a book out there that they can look at that maybe you share some of those pictures in? Well, I did two books. Uh, we did large coffee table uh, photo books called uh, Sled Driver, and the second book was called The Untouchables. Um, and I put uh, my favorite in, uh, pictures in there, a large large frame. We did a big horizontal type book so we could show them full frame. These are old Kodachrome slides and pretty ancient uh, film cameras in those days. But amazingly, uh, I, I was able to get some that came out well and uh, 
I'm really uh, proud of, of having done that. Uh, but uh, that's those books have sold for years and years, and they're as popular as ever today. We, all over the world, we're in 48 different countries. And just because, not because I'm a great photographer, not because I'm some great writer, but to put that topic together with the po- photos and, and be able to write about it at all just hadn't been done before. And uh, those books I'm very proud of to stand on their own today as the most popular uh, books on that subject worldwide. And uh, I'm, I'm just real proud of that. I never imagined when I did them that it would go beyond just a couple of years and, you know, a few, a few hundred sales. Uh, we are, <laughs> we are now, uh, 20 years later, 25 years later, that book is still, I'm, I'm shipping them out every day. So, um, it, it was a rare, it's a rare glimpse into what that was like flying the airplane. Cause we always got that question, you know, what was it like to fly? They didn't want to know how to build one. One know what was it like? And I didn't want to write a technical digest. There's been some very nice, SR-71 books written, uh, uh, technical information, just all the information you'd ever want to have at your fingertips, from the spacesuit to the engines to the construction to the parameters to the cockpit. Uh, And I I didn't want to do that. To me, the most important thing was the human experience of doing it, Uh, the most uh, dramatic and the most interesting. So I wrote about just what was it like in plain language, uh, and I think a lot of the air show fans and the general public who's fascinated with this airplane appreciated that uh and that's probably why the books are still very uh, successful to this day we'll definitely have some links to that in the show notes as far as where they can purchase that book um it's actually and you're now involved full-time in that uh as far as from aviation to uh this actual you know photography life and selling books do you still get to fly or, or is it something that uh you haven't been able to do in a while no, what I did was uh, when I got out of the Air Force, I was really into aviation uh, photography, and I uh, kind of thought I was going to go on that path. So I uh, I flew with the Thunderbirds, I flew with the Blue Angels, had had two very unique experiences that nobody else got to do. I spent a whole year with the Blues and the backseat, and I did two books on, on those things. And when I was done with the Blue Angels, I think I was about in my early 40s then, and that's real. That's just not comfortable flying. I'm, I'll just tell you right now, <laughs> as you may know, flying with the Blue Angels for a year, and uh, I had to really be in shape. And it was real hard. And I had, uh, I had, a, I was born with a crooked spine to begin with, uh, which is another whole story. But uh, my back was hurting pretty bad, and I realized I had done everything I wanted to do in my flying career. I flew the world's fastest jet. Got to fly fighter jets. I got to then the very first A-10 squadron. Got to do air shows, got to fly with the Blue Angels and Thunderbirds, and I pretty much hung up my spurs. And I thought, you know, I really want to pursue my photography and my writing, and I want to put my money into that and not into buying a Cessna and letting it sit out there collect dust at the airport. And I knew it'd probably be unsafe if I didn't fly regularly and uh, keep it up, so I, I hung it up. And after the Blue Angel thing, sometime around 1995, 96, I... I uh, just never flew again after that. Um, and I didn't re- really regret that decision. I'd done everything I wanted to do, and, and it was kind of the kind of flying that I really enjoy doing kind of hurts my body anyway. So, <laughs> And you can't do that. Um, and uh, I just don't. And I pursued my photography, which led to 
my nature photography and, and shooting birds and things, staying with the flight thing, just kind of gradually transitioned into, I had done all the air show photography and it just became, uh, the internet exploded with aviation images to the point where it wasn't any, there wasn't any point in trying to get yet another F-15 shot at an air show. And I uh, really got into birds by accident, but I, I look at them as airplanes, man, and they're way more interesting and uh, more more fascinating and never two are alike. <laughs> it's nothing routine about it. And for the last 15, 16 years, I've been shooting uh, birds and uh, being out in nature, so I'm, I just kind of morphed into uh, a different type of flying uh, photography that's uh, way more uh, challenging, to say the least. And I'm um, actually working on a book now of uh, my favorite uh, hawks, uh, harriers, and kestrels, and uh, doing uh, a picture book and um, putting it together. Hopefully, in about another year, we can uh, we can do that. But you know, life is is just a, a it changes all the time, and you you go through different paths and different phases. And that's why it's, it is important to enjoy what you're doing while you're doing it. I am glad I absorbed every minute of flying when I was flying. So that I never had a problem looking back on, oh, boy, I really missed it or I didn't do enough of it. No, I never say that because I really did it fully and almost killed myself a hundred times. And uh, I could walk away from it, uh, sore back and all. <laughs> say, <laughs> yeah, wow, you were pretty lucky. to You flew with the two major demo teams. You got to do air shows in the A-10. You got to fly the Blackbird. You wrote books. On, you know, what more could you, uh, you know? Uh, so I felt uh, I feel good about where I am now, and I really enjoy being out out there with the birds. And uh, um, I don't fly. To answer your question, that's a long answer to say I don't fly anymore, and uh, it's okay. I I truly loved it, every ounce of it when I did it. It was my life, and uh, I can understand that people want to do. It. It just seems, as I was listening to you, that there's there's some seasons that in life in general, and uh, as yeah. you're as you're saying that, I could see all these seasons passing. I just uh, was with somebody who hung up his wings and said, "You know what? Uh, I'm just not safe anymore. I'm too old. I really loved everything, and I love aviation, but I'm not going to do it in that manner." Yeah. yeah, I saw a lot of guys unsafe in that uh, they had just gotten out of the military. They had their little private plane at the airport, and they'd fly maybe once a month, twice a month, and they were maybe not current as they needed to be. Maybe they weren't quite as uh, up on their crosswind landings as they should be. You know, some people were killed doing that. Some people crashed, and some people just ended up having the plane sit there uh, with all those hangar fees, and uh, they sold their plane. You know, so I I wanted to either do it fully or just you know not do it. Let me. Um, and I. You know, my, again, you know, my your your body physically for, is going to talk to you too about what what kind of flying you can do. It says a lot coming from somebody who's flown the SR seventy one to to say to us, you know, that we need to keep current, we need to to keep proficient in an airplane, uh, and even even a one seventy two from SR seventy one to one seventy two. You do, yeah, and and that that's a true testament right there to the importance of actually keeping those skills up and and keeping recent. I will tell you, I have flown uh, with people a few times where they took me up in their latest, uh, you know, amazing glass cockpit space age technology screens that were dazzling me and flying. And I, a lot of times I didn't feel they were, they were clearing enough or being safe enough. And I thought, you know, 
there's a whole lot of things I'd do differently here if I was flying. <laughs> I, I think people develop some bad habits in uh, getting in into playing the video game that is uh, the new cockpits now. Right. Uh, you got to have your head out, and, and so you know it's a whole different uh, world now. When you look at some of the aviation advances and incredible uh, technology that assist assists you as a pilot, but yet yet we still have crashes then how come it's, it's that human error factor so uh it is important that you stay current you, you do it safely and you you stay up with uh, with what's going on uh, with it it changes all the time wow you know brian this has been awesome talking to you i just uh, uh i know we're up on our time but i really want to know what uh first of all what's your favorite book you've written so many of them Wh- which one of those would be like say the the one that you well like you know it's, it's it's like your firstborn child, sled driver. No matter what else I ever do, <laughs> <laughs> like the, my Blue Angel book was was God. What a! I'm so proud of that project because it was so difficult. But no matter what happens, sled driver's going to always be you know the the one I'm known for. So even if I do my bird book or do that, no matter what else I do in life, it's just that one stamped on your forehead because it was the first, and it's it's still radically popular from from uh, Japan to Germany uh, today uh, on the internet. So it's the most quoted. And so that, I didn't anticipate that. <laughs> but uh, I'm really proud of uh, some of the writing in the Thunderbird book, and I'm ex- extremely proud of the, the photography in the uh, Will Angel book. Um, but I really hope my bird book uh, actually says more than all of them, and, uh, and the pictures were even more challenging. So... It life's the process, as you said. It's uh, you have different seasons in life, and you go on to different things. And all that you've done as a part of you, everything I learned in the cockpit as a fighter pilot, but has served you well later in life. And things totally unrelated. It's an approach. It's a way you do things. It's an attitude. It's about perspective, and it's about making choices. And uh, you, there's no day promised to anyone. You better make the most of each each day because. Uh, who could have predicted this whole COVID virus thing uh, as an example? Uh, yeah. It goes by fast. It goes by quick. <laughs> that's for uh, sure. Gosh, you know, that, I think that's very true for those listening right now that are thinking of giving up on flying and aviation. Uh, if that's your dream, still try to fulfill. Just just uh, pursue it. Just like attitude, you know, it's uh, persistence and perspective. And, and it's really important to take all that uh, Brian has said to us to heart. Uh, and I know these are tough times in aviation, but boy, just think about where you are and what you're doing and how blessed you are and how fortunate you are to say you're flying an airplane. It's a, It may be a Cessna. It may not be an SR-71, but but you are in this space and and just enjoy it while you're, while you're going through that whole journey. Uh, but uh, Brian, is there anything else uh, you wanted to maybe say before we go for just, you know, why, again, just reiterate why it's so important not to give up on whatever dream it is, especially in flight. Well, you know, I, nothing stays the same. This whole COVID thing, someday we're going to look back on this and go, wow, that was, I'm glad that's over and uh, and it won't seem so bad. But when you're in, in the middle of it, uh, don't lose perspective. Uh, there's been much worse things happen to uh, the world, our country, and people. Um, those people that got through World War II for five years on rationing and trying to make, make a, a life work uh, here back in the, in the States. Uh, I, I just think we need to take a deep breath and uh, say, you know, not lose hope and not lose uh, go crazy with uh, 
sincere and uh, just uh, life changes every day. It, it, and you don't know, you know, five years from now, what new calamity would happen, will happen. We've gotten through hurricanes and floods and pandemics and, and I will get through this. And uh, I just, I just get depressed listening to some people in the news all the time or in the paper and they're just uh, so quick to fall off the wagon. I'm so glad these people were not on the Oregon trail. <laughs> they would have seen what their first gopher turned around and would still be in Kansas. Uh, it's like, Hey, you know, just the worst things can happen. Yeah. So uh, just uh, hold the hold steady and uh, we'll get through it. Brian, very well said. And, you know, we really appreciate your service, uh, both in the military, but also your service to humanity and going out and telling your story. And uh, it never gets old. It's also a very important story. And, and if it just reaches one person, if it's just one person listening today that's inspired by this, I, I think we've done our job in life. Uh, and and those that are listening right now, I really, you know, I think one of the most important things to do is is don't don't stop. You know, when we're, we're finish this whole recording, you you turn it off you go on your way you know I, I really want you to possibly do something in your aviation career in your life right now it could be something small something large but i really want you to go out there and do something it could be looking something up on the internet reading one of brian's books researching what you want to do next in your aviation life or your life in general but the most important thing is to keep moving forward and don't stop and keep going forward in your life and in your flying life well brian it's been a pleasure having you i appreciate your coming here uh once again where can they find you on the internet sleddriver.com the easiest uh, thing to remember and that'll take you right to our website and i i will tell you don't lose, lose faith in people because I get the coolest emails and every week from all over the world, people who are saying exactly what you're preaching on your show uh, about being inspired. And it's so heartwarming to see, just like you said, if you can affect even one person, uh, I get the coolest emails about people who, who really did it and got it. And they just want to write and share, share that with you. So it does work and it's an individual uh, choice, but, Sleddriver.com, and uh, got any problems on there? Give us a call. Or and um, unfortunately, <laughs> the author is in almost every day now because he's not out there speaking, so <laughs> he's likely to answer the phone. <laughs> and uh, but uh, it's it's uh, yeah, like I say, we're only here for a blink in the universe. We're we, our whole lifespan is just a blink. So. Uh, enjoy each day i just tell people you know enjoy each day you don't know if you got 10 left or five or 500 you don't know so we're talking right now i'm brian Scholl from uh, sleddriver.com a wonderful book sled driver flying the world's fastest jet uh haven't made it all the way through the book but it's a wonderful uh read and look i should say uh check out all the other books out there and like i said make sure you do something today to keep moving forward in your life and your career and i hope something that has been said on this podcast has inspired you to keep flying to keep moving forward. Well, we'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying out there. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. 
Members of the Stock Mike Avcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.